Well, Acts chapter number 2, and we're not going to read our entire text this morning to start out like we did last week, but I'm going to preach to you this morning part 2 of the first gospel sermon ever preached. We're in Acts chapter number 2, and uh, we'll begin reading. Let's read verse number 22, and uh, we'll read several verses, and then um, we'll get into the message this morning. Verse 22 says, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst, him... Excuse me, God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Skip down to verse number 37. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children, and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. With many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation." Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, it's a joy to come before you this morning. It's a joy to be in your house and have your word. We thank you for all of these that have come today. We thank you for our guests. We pray a special blessing upon them. We pray, Father, that as a church, that our hearts would be drawn closer to you. Uh, Lord, I ask that you'd help me to preach uh, these truths with your wisdom, with your grace, and with your strength. I pray that you'd give liberty here in the service today. May the Spirit of God work in our hearts and show us the things that we need to see. Lead us and guide us, and we pray above all that the Lord Jesus Christ would be glorified. What a joy it would be, Father, if you would save someone today. Show them their need. Show them that Jesus Christ is the answer. We pray, Father, for your grace and your blessings. In Jesus' name, amen. If I could give a quick review of last week's message, part number one, we talked about the purpose of Christ, and we just read about it in verse number 22 and verse number 23. If you'll recall that there's a statement in verse number 23 that refers to the Lord Jesus Christ being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Because of that particular phrase, it kind of led us to start out this two-part message in not really a rabbit trail, but kind of a side issue. And we talked last week about how the, the Reformation needs a Reformation. We took a look at topics such as Calvinism. We took a look at topics such as infant baptism. We took a look at uh, some things that are historically known as Baptist distinctives. I think I mentioned at the beginning of last week's message that, I, to my knowledge, I have never preached a message on Baptist distinctives. 
And yet, there are some things in history, some things that we need to know and understand that are truthful, but they are also helpful to our young people to know where we came from. If we don't know where we came from, it's pretty hard to discern where we're at. And if we don't know where we're at, it's kind of hard for us to figure out where we need to go. The information in last week's message is important. But the subject of today's message, I'd have to say, is not just simply important, but it's absolutely vital. And so I present to you part two of the first gospel message ever preached, and the subtitle is Preaching Christ. Because the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter number 4 and verse number 5, Paul says, For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, your servants, for Jesus' sake. Regardless of denomination or the label of your church or belief or group or fellowship or uh, cooperation, whatever you want to call it, the most important thing that any believer can do is to preach Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so point number two, we've seen also the purpose of Christ, but number two We see in our text the pains of Christ. Let me draw your attention to verse number 24. Acts chapter 2, verse number 24. Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, For he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope. Verse 27, Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. As I think about Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary, I think it's significant regarding His suffering on the cross that He makes no mention of His physical suffering with one exception. He said, I thirst. Other than that, everything that He had endured, everything that He was suffering with there as He hung on Calvary's cross, He makes absolutely no mention, no complaint, Nothing whatsoever of all of the beating, all of the cruelty, all of the things that were being done to him, he makes absolutely no mention. Studying the cross of Christ and his sufferings, we see that his suffering extended to every part of his being. His body. The prophet said that his visage was so marred more than any man. What does that mean, preacher? It means that if you were to look at the visage, the appearance of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary, you would have to say that His body had been brutalized more than any man that we could even imagine. When we think about His soul, I'm reminded of His agony in the Garden of Gethsemane as His hour was approaching and He sensed and felt the burden and the weight of what He was getting ready to go through. And He prayed there in the garden. And He said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from Me. Nevertheless, not My will, but Thy will be done. The Scripture record says that as He prayed those prayers, that 
he was in such an agony that his sweat became as great drops of blood. Physically speaking, not only that, but inside in his soul, it was so much pain, so much dread, so much stress and pressure. You think you've got pressure. You think that you've got stress. Jesus had so much stress that his the, the capillaries in his blood and, and underneath his skin were literally bursting. And as the sweat was coming out of the pores, there was a mixture of blood. It's a horrible, horrible thing he was going through. But beyond that, in his soul, there on Calvary's cross, there was a moment in space and time where he made this statement. He said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's a feeling. It's a suffering that God the Son had never, ever experienced. I've had days in my life where I've not been in fellowship with my Heavenly Father. I've had days when it seemed like God was so far away from me. I've had days when the way that I was living, the coldness of my heart, I'd have to say that I was far, far away from the Lord. When Adam was in the garden after they partook of that fruit, he realized that he was naked. And when God shows up, the Scripture tells us that Adam hid there in the garden. God said, Adam, where art thou? And he said, I heard your voice and I was afraid because I was naked. He's trying to keep his distance. He's trying to hide from God. I've had times in my life where I didn't want God to show up. I didn't want God to remind my already guilty conscience of my sin. Jesus had never, up to this point in time, had never ever felt a guilty conscience or any kind of a separation from His Heavenly Father. Personally, I believe that when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, that was what he was dreading the most. Not the beatings, not the nails, not the cross, not the plucking of his beard, none of those things, but that moment when he said and cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why did God forsake his son on Calvary's cross and one of the most horrible times of his life, because the Bible teaches us that when Jesus hung on the cross, that he literally became sin for us. He who knew no sin became sin. All of our sins, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus bore in his body as he hung on Calvary's cross. If you don't think that sin is a horrible thing and Listen, we live in a day and age where sin is just kind of, kind of, uh, softened up. It's like, well, we don't really sin, we just make mistakes, or everybody's human. But listen, according to the Bible, if you don't understand the awfulness of sin, just in your mind, take a look at Calvary's cross of what God did for us as He literally became sin on the cross of Calvary. In verse number 24 of our text, we find a phrase. It says that God hath raised him up, having loosed, watch this, the pains of death. 
If you've ever had a loved one that was suffering, dying in hospice, perhaps maybe dying of cancer, then you look forward to that day, that moment, when they're no longer suffering, when they take that last breath. I can remember that when my own mother was passing away, and I can remember when the hospice, they started talking about the death rattle, and as a family, we said, well, when that starts, how much time does she have? And we were told, you know, maximum 48 hours. And as my mom was no longer conscious, basically in a coma, and we would hear that death rattle, that gasping for air and that gurgling, and we thought, well, praise the Lord, it's the end is near. We only got about 24 to 48 hours of this. And Lo and behold, she went in that condition for about a week and a half. We thought, is she ever gonna, gonna quit suffering or is she just gonna keep breathing? And we looked forward to that time when she was no longer suffering. We could look at her body and say she's in peace and she's at rest. When Jesus gave up the ghost there on Calvary's cross, he said, it is finished. We would have to say that the physical suffering at that point, he's no longer under the suffering of dying. But our text here says that God raised up Jesus from the dead three days and three nights later, and that when Jesus resurrected, that God loosed him from the pains of death. There's a truth that we need to be aware of, that not only are there pains of dying, but there are pains of death. It was the pains of death that He was delivered from. Notice in verse 27, once again, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Look at verse number 29, excuse me, verse number 31. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that His soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. The Bible makes it clear that while the body of Jesus Christ was three days and three nights in the rich man's tomb, that his soul went down to the lower parts of the earth. Jesus himself told the thief on the cross, he said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Jesus prophesied as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly. He said, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So during that time between the cross and the resurrection tomb, Jesus is in the heart of the earth. And part of that time, do not know how much of that time, He is in a place that the Scripture declares to be hell. And the Scripture declares that when He resurrected, that He was loosed from the pains of death. Hebrews chapter number 2, verse number 14. The Bible says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, He also Himself likewise took part of the same, that through death He might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil." And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. We live in a free country in the United States of America. 
But it doesn't matter what country you're in. It doesn't matter what generation that you live in. Every single one of us that are descendants of Adam, ever since he sinned in the Garden of Eden, we are brought under the bondage of that fear of death. People say, well, I'm not afraid of dying. How often have I visited people in the hospital and as they are given the pronouncement from their physician that they only have days to live, I talk to them and they say, Preacher, I know I'm saved. I'm not afraid of dying. But as that day approaches and their health continues to decline and they know that the doctor might have given them several days, but they know that, hey, I'm within literally hours or breaths of crossing over to the other side, how often have I had that same person that three days early was not afraid of death is now saying, Pastor, can you come and pray with me? Can you come and talk to me? And at that point, they're wanting to make sure because they know that it's imminent. That's natural to be afraid of death. If we're not afraid of death, it's probably because we have this feeling that death is not imminent. But when it becomes imminent in our minds, it's something to be reckoned with. Faith is not sight. Faith is hope. Faith is trust. But it is not sight. When we take our last breath, we are trusting that Jesus Christ, our Savior, is going to bring us into heaven. But we've not yet seen that. And so we're having to trust in a Savior that we've never seen. We're having to trust in a God. And you know what? The Bible says quite clearly in Hebrews chapter number 11 that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It says that without faith it is impossible to please Him. Do you know that you cannot please God without faith? We live in a generation where people want to understand God. They want to see, they want to understand why, why God do you do things the way that you do things? Why did you allow this to happen? Why did you, uh, why did your predeterminate counsel, why did you have Jesus die on a cross? And all of these things we want to understand. And God doesn't necessarily give us all of His understanding as to why He does things the way that He does them. But I do know this, that God is our Creator, and He's our Savior, and above all, God wants us to trust Him. What pleasure, how much pleasure does it bring God when His children just simply say, God, I don't understand, but I trust and I believe. Hey, as parents and our children, when they obey us, it brings us glory It brings us pleasure. As God's children, we too ought to bring our Heavenly Father pleasure by simply trusting Him. I don't know about you, but personally, I hate death. Anytime I'm around it, anytime that I think about it, I see someone lose lose a loved one, I cry. I, I hate to tell you this, you might, this might embarrass you, but it doesn't embarrass me. If I'm watching a movie, or reading a book, and someone dies, I cry. I didn't used to be that way. But I've lost my mother, I've lost my father, I've went through 
the experience of losing a loved one. And when I see somebody else experiencing that same feeling, I empathize with them. It's almost as if it opens up my own wound of grief that just kind of always lies there buried until something brings it to the surface. I cry. I hate death because death means goodbye. Death means you say, well, it's a loved one. They're saved. You're going to see them again. I rejoice in those that die in Christ that are in the presence of the Lord. I rejoice for them that my loved ones are in the presence of Jesus Christ and they're rejoicing and they're feeling no more pain, no more suffering. I'm happy for them, but I miss them. And I want to see them. I'm going to see them again, but I know not when. I want to see them today. I hate death. There's something about it that just we know down deep that death is our enemy and that the devil wishes it to be so. But beyond what we experience in death, I want to show you four places in Scripture that talk more about this pains of death that we need to be aware of. Sadly, most Christians today aren't even aware of the truth that I'm getting ready to present to you. You ever notice that you don't find many preachers talking about hell these days? You don't find many preachers warning people about hell? Say, well, that's not very loving or kind to bring up bad things like that. Listen, if you're going to hell, I don't love you if I don't warn you about it. In Revelation 2, verse number 11, Jesus, this is after He resurrected, He makes a statement. He says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Now, we don't have to be real intelligent. You don't have to count very far to know that there's more than one death. There's two. One, two. The death that we witness here on this earth, we witness people dying the first time. But after that, there is a second death. Revelation 20, verse number 6. The Scripture says, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Once again, we see a reference to a second death. Revelation 20, verse number 14. Mm. Here it gets a little intense. It says, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Jesus, in Luke chapter number 16, tells a story of a rich man who went to hell the heart of the earth. And the Bible says that he lift up his eyes being in torments. And he said to Father Abraham, could I just get Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in these flames. This man in hell had the torment of a guilty conscience and regrets from the past. Abraham said, son, remember in your lifetime you had all these good things, and yet, and I'm paraphrasing, you rejected God. The rich man said, 
Abraham, send Lazarus back from the dead and have him warn my five brothers. Have him go warn them lest they come to this place. This rich man knew that his five brethren, that they weren't trusting God either. They weren't righteous. They weren't right with God. And he knew they need to be warned. Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Moses and the prophets were all physically dead. But what Jesus, what Abraham meant is they've got the Bible. They've got the writings of Moses and the prophets. You know, there are people, souls all over planet Earth that have never heard the name Jesus Christ? Do you know that there are languages and nations that many of the people don't even have a copy of the Scripture? They've never seen a Bible. They've never heard the name of Jesus. Many of them without Christ will go off into eternity. And according to the Scripture, there's only one way to get to heaven. Jesus said, you must be born again. Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Brothers and sisters, that's why it's so important that we do everything within our power to get the gospel to every creature. Because a man or a woman or a child cannot be saved unless they have the message of Jesus Christ and the cross of Calvary. Abraham told that rich man, they have Moses and the prophets. That rich man said, no, but they'll listen to Abraham if he is resurrected from the grave. Abraham said, listen, rich man, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they're not going to listen to Lazarus. Do you know that we've got 2,000 years of history to prove that Abraham was right? Because we have literally Hundreds and hundreds of personal testimonial accounts of people who saw Jesus Christ after He resurrected from the grave. And yet, we have Bibles. You can buy a Bible in Walmart for two bucks. And yet, how many people in America today have rejected the Word of God and one day will die and go off into eternity and perhaps go to a devil's hell. When that time in hell comes to an end, the Bible teaches us that every soul is going to stand before God at a great white throne of judgment. And at that point, death and hell are going to be cast into a lake of fire. And it's permanent. You say, I don't, I, I don't, I don't think that's a very, I can't believe in a God that would do that. Listen, I'm not trying to convince you, uh, to believe in God. That's between you and Him. But I am here to tell you about the God of this Bible, and if He's right, and if He's true, and if this book is true, we better take heed. There is a second death that we need to be concerned about. Revelation 21, verse number 8 says, but the fearful, and unbelieving, and the abominable, and murderers, and whoremongers, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, sounds like our culture today, shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The pains of Jesus Christ. He went to hell. Why did He go to hell? 
Listen, if He was bearing our sins on Calvary's cross and He resurrected without sin, I'd say He had to put our sins somewhere. And I believe He put them in hell. And then He was resurrected from the grave. Listen, He suffered for us. He suffered so that you don't have to. What a wonderful truth of the Gospel preaching Christ that Jesus Christ endured the pains of death. Secondly, or excuse me, thirdly, I should say, I want to draw your attention to the prophecy of Christ. We're not going to read it all for sake of time, but in verse 28 through verse number 36, we find this prophecy that's written in the Psalms. David, as he would sing and write those Psalms in the Old Testament, many, many times he's not only singing, in his mind he may be singing about himself, but prophetically, it's amazing how the Holy Spirit works, he's giving us a sneak peek into the sufferings of Jesus Christ. The Scripture foretold that Jesus would die on the cross. The Scripture foretold that Jesus would suffer. In fact, there are so many things that the Bible prophesies that would be fulfilled right at the cross of Calvary. If you're skeptical, if you're a doubter, let me just give you a few of the prophecies of Christ. How about this? He was betrayed by Judas. The Scripture says that he would be betrayed by his friend. Jesus referred to Judas as friend. How about this? All would forsake him. The Scripture says that everyone, and listen, Peter and John, all the disciples forsook him when he was arrested by the high priest. The Scripture says that he would be crucified by both Jew and Gentile. In Psalm 2, verse 1 through 2, David says, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Hey, at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, you had an alliance between the religious Jew, the high priests, and the Roman, uh, the Roman leaders... You had Pilate, Herod, the Roman soldiers, and they all joined forces to crucify the Messiah. That was prophesied. The Bible prophesies that he would be silent in his suffering. The Bible prophesies that he would be smitten on the cheek, whipped, that his hair would be plucked from him. Isaiah 50, verse number 6 Jesus says, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. The Scripture prophesies that His garment would be gambled for. The Bible says that they cast lots for His garment. His hands and His feet would be pierced. He would be pierced by a spear. No bones would be broken. Listen, the common crucifixion that the Romans did, they almost always broke the legs of the victim of crucifixion. They'd hang hang there on the cross and they wouldn't die as quickly as Jesus did. And the soldiers would come up with that heavy spear and just break those legs so that the person on the cross would not be able to hold up his weight and they would suffocate and get it over with quicker. The Bible says that not a bone of him would be broken. And it wasn't. 
The scriptures prophesied that he would be crucified with thieves, that he would be given vinegar to drink, that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. Listen, all these are just a handful of the things that were prophesied regarding Jesus Christ, not by one man or two men, but by multiple prophets who lived hundreds of years apart. And yet all of these prophecies were fulfilled in one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank God for the witness of the Word of God and the fulfilled prophecies. Hey, if you're looking for something miraculous to point you to the truth, we've got a whole book full of miracles right here, and they all point toward the cross of Calvary. Number four, I want to talk to you about the penetration of Christ's gospel. Look with me at verse number 37. It says, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. Pricked in their heart. That's a spiritual, that's an emotional response to Peter preaching to them and telling them about the Lord Jesus Christ, His death, His burial, and His resurrection. They were pricked in the heart. I read in Acts 5 verse 33 that Peter preaches later on. It says, when they heard that, they were cut to the heart. Now, I don't know just how much difference that the Lord's signifying between being pricked in the heart and being cut to the heart. But I do know this, that when these in Acts 2.37 heard the message, they were pricked in the heart and they said to Peter and to the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? They're looking for answers. But in Acts 5, verse 33, when they heard the gospel message, when they were reproved for crucifying their Messiah, they were cut to the heart. And the only response that they could think of is, we've got to kill the messenger. In Acts 20, excuse me, Acts 7, verse number 54, Stephen, a different apostle, has just preached to the Jews their entire history. He's taken them all the way from Moses and coming out of Egypt all the way up to the present time when he reveals to them that you crucified. Listen, the fulfillment of everything you learned from the Scripture, God brought it right to you and you crucified Him. And it says, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on Him with their teeth. A few verses later, we find that the whole mob is picking up stones. I'm not talking about little rocks. They're picking up stones that are about this big, and they're stoning Stephen. And that whole time, the preacher is looking up to heaven, and he's saying, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Oh, how they were so angry at the messenger for telling them and preaching to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Acts 26 and verse number 14, says, When we were all fallen to the earth, this is Paul's testimony. He says, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Here's another testimony of that Holy Spirit of God just pricking the heart of Paul. And I don't think that this was just one time. I think that this was multiple times that the Holy Spirit is trying to get Paul's attention, 
get Paul to realize that you are missing the boat here, buddy. You are persecuting your Savior. Thank God Paul responded. I mean, he resisted and he resisted, but thank God on that road to Damascus, he responded to the Lord and he said, Lord, he knew it was Jesus. He said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Praise the Lord for the salvation of the Apostle Paul, a man who was once a persecutor of the Lord Jesus Christ, who now became one of the biggest proponents of the gospel of Jesus Christ. One who was causing the suffering of Christians to one who became one of the most suffering Christians in human history. Hey, I like Acts 16, verse number 14. It says, A certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us. Paul's preaching to him, to her Jesus Christ. And it says, Whose heart the Lord opened that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. I can remember when I resisted the Lord, and I resisted Him and resisted Him. I said no, and I said no, and the Holy Spirit just kept pricking at my heart, just kept convicting me, just kept making me feel guilty and dirty and empty. But praise the Lord, praise the Lord eventually, God got through this thick skull of mine and I opened up my heart and I let Him in. And what a wonderful thing it was to let Him in, to be a responder rather than a rejecter. Hold your place here and look with me at Ephesians chapter number 4. I'm almost done this morning. Ephesians chapter number 4. We've talked about people being pricked in their heart by the Holy Spirit. We've seen people being cut to the heart. We've seen people who have opened up their heart. But you know what? There is a more dangerous heart condition than anything that we have even talked about. And it's found in Ephesians chapter 4. And look with me at verse number 17. It says, This I say therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth Walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. Verse 19, who being past feeling, have given themselves over unto lasciviousness, that's all kind of sexual lusts and so forth, to work all uncleanness, with greediness, he says, but ye have not so learned Christ, if so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. Oh, listen, if you've ever been pricked in the heart or cut to the heart, if you've ever refused to open your heart, there will come a time in your life when your heart will become hardened, when it will become past feeling, where the preacher's preaching or the Holy Spirit's working, the Lord Jesus is knocking, but you're dead. You're deaf. You're asleep. And that knocking and that pleading is falling on deaf ears. And you end up going off into life unsaved without the Lord. 
Listen, ladies and gentlemen, don't be in that condition. Don't harden your heart. Don't reject the Lord, but respond to Him and open up your heart just like Lydia did and receive Him as your personal Savior. Open up your heart and let Him in because He will be a friend like none other, a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. If you'll turn back to our text in Acts chapter number 2 in conclusion, I want to talk to you for just a minute or two about the promise that is given to Christ's responders. If you'll respond to the Lord, if you'll respond to His gospel, the Lord makes some promises. In verse number 22, He says, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Listen, I know that I'm not preaching the same exact message that Peter preached. I'm simply using the things that he preached to preach to you. But I would say to you, ye men of Statesville, ye men of Moxville, ye men of wherever you might reside, hear these words. Look at verse number 39. He says, For the promise is unto you and to your children, and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Is He calling you here today? Is He speaking to your heart? Is He showing you that you need Jesus Christ as your Savior? You need to personally open up your heart to Him. There's some promises that He has given to you and your children if you'll just respond to Him. Verse number 38 talks about receiving the remission of sins. Hey, what a joy, what a blessing to be saved and to know that every sin I've ever committed, every sin I ever will commit is under the blood of Jesus Christ. I mean, you talk about a wonderful feeling. My sins used to haunt me. My sins and my regret and my guilt used to torment me. But praise the Lord, the blood of Jesus Christ cleansed me from all sin and now I can have fellowship with Him. He'll do the same for you. He gave the promise of the Holy Ghost. You talk about someone moving inside. Listen, when I got right with the Lord and the Holy Spirit of God came into my life, uh, there was it was a great and a wonderful fellowship, but also there was that abiding presence of God and Him trying to steer me away from things that I used to just go running headlong into. What a wonderful thing to have the Holy Spirit in our life. Verse 40 and verse 47 uses the term saved. I'm glad that I'm saved today. If you'll respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, you can be saved as well. Verse number 44, look at it with me. And all that believed were together and had all things common. You know what I see there? I see the promise and the blessing of fellowship. 1 John chapter number 1 says, We have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from all sin. Hey, because my sins are forgiven, I have fellowship with Jesus. If you've been saved, your sins are forgiven, and you have fellowship with Jesus, and you have fellowship with Jesus, and you have fellowship with Jesus, guess what? Now we get to have fellowship with one another. We have something in common that is eternal. We have something in common that is no, that is not trivial. Oh, they say birds of a feather flock together. People will have fellowship among some really crazy things. 
I'm sure that many of you here this morning uh, are sports fans. And you may have fellowship with people who cheer for the same team as you cheer for. People have fellowship over their favorite musician or their favorite genre of music. And, uh, you know, people have fellowship over some really weird and crazy things. But they're all trivial. And they're not lasting. But I'll tell you something that's meaningful is the fellowship that God's children, those that are saved and have their sins forgiven, hey, we have an experience that brings a unity and a fellowship and a camaraderie that the world cannot give. You say, wait a minute, preacher, I've been around Christians. It seems like they're always fussing and they're always fighting. Well, that's a shame. That ought not be. But let me say this to you, that just because something is labeled Christian, that doesn't mean that it's Christian. Hey, look, I I can fill a Mountain Dew bottle full of strychnine and tell you that it's Mountain Dew, but it's the substance that matters, not the label. Amen? So don't lump everybody together. There are some who love the Lord Jesus Christ. And truly have a heart to follow Him and to worship Him. And when people like that get together, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. It's sure better than what the world has to offer. I look out among this congregation and I see people, you know what, some of you are a real piece of work. That's not very nice, preacher. You know what, you're looking at a man that's a real piece of work. And we got all of these quirks and differences and personalities and backgrounds and cultures. But listen, if we're saved and our sins are forgiven, we have something in common that the world can't even understand. In fact, the Scripture says that the angels look down from heaven and they can't even figure out what's going on. That's a huge blessing, wouldn't you agree? Fellowship. Hey, verse 44 and They that believed were together, had all things common. That's a purpose for living. We've got a purpose that we are here for, and that is to serve Jesus Christ, and to make sure that we tell others about Christ, that we glorify Him. Hey, there's no better purpose worth living for than living for the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 46, gladness and singleness of heart. Wow, what a wonderful thing to have singleness of heart. A lost person, you, you, the, the lost people look at Christians and say, well, they're just a bunch of hypocrites. I'll tell you the biggest hypocrite on planet earth is lost people. You talk to a lost person and you say, well, um, would you go to heaven? If you, well, I hope so. I hope I'm good enough. For someone to think that they can be good enough, To satisfy a holy God? You know what that, that's just, you talk about total hypocrisy. That's hypocrisy right there. To know in their heart of hearts every sin. I mean, I've got a memory. Sometimes I try to block it out. But if I sit down and try to think about it, I can think about some pretty bad sins that I've committed in my past. I don't know how you are. I I kept my high school annuals, but they're in a box in the attic. And I think I've only took them out and looked at them one time in 30 years. You know why? Because it was painful. 
And it was embarrassing because it reminded me of all of my past sins, the sins that, as we sang about, that God has forgotten about. If God doesn't want to remember them, why should we? But praise the Lord, that singleness of heart to know that my sins are forgiven and now I'm free to be what God would have me to be. Verse 47, praising God. Isn't it a wonderful thing to be able to praise God? These are all benefits and promises that God gives to whoever will respond to the message of Jesus Christ. Since 9-11, there's a term that's become very common. I, I don't recall this even, I don't recall hearing this terminology growing up, but since 9-11, we hear the term first responders. It's become very common. And we know what first responders are. They're the ones, they're the, it refers to those people who treat every call as a life or death emergency. When the call comes in, they're the first ones to respond. They treat everything like it's a life or death situation. God is calling you to salvation. And according to what we've seen from the Bible, it is life or death situation. And that second death is something that you ought to have enough sense to open up your mind and your eyes and say, wow, I need to prepare myself not just for this first death, but I need to be looking at that second death, because that's the lake of fire that concerns me. That's the warning. That's the call. And God's saying you don't have to go there. If you'll trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you will be delivered. In fact, the Bible says, as we saw, the second death will have no power over you. But you have to respond. Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Listen, baptism won't save you. Baptism is something that goes along with after you've repented and after you've believed. Peter saw it as kind of a package deal. But listen, if you're trusting in baptism or church membership or a magical prayer that you prayed, none of those will save you. But I tell you what will save you. If you will repent of your sins and acknowledge that you need a Savior, and if you will believe that Jesus Christ died on Calvary's cross to pay your price and that He resurrected the third day, if you will put your faith and trust in that simple gospel message, God will give you all of the promises of the forgiveness of sins, eternal life, a life with purpose, a life with fellowship, in short, a life worth living. The first gospel message ever preached, that word gospel means good news. Peter had some good news for these men of Israel, just as we have shared some good news for you, men of Statesville. Will you be a responder to the gospel message today? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the gospel message. The good news of Jesus Christ. What a joy, what a privilege to be able to preach Jesus Christ to this congregation today. Lord, I don't know the spiritual condition, the needs of the hearts here today, but I know that you know. Perhaps maybe the Holy Spirit has been pricking someone's heart and uh, trying to draw them to a saving 
knowledge of you. I pray that you just draw them. May they open up their heart. Give them grace. Show them your love. Show them, God, that they can have a life that's worth living if they'll only come to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's remain seated. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Pianist is going to play softly. I'd like to give you an opportunity to be a first responder today. Is God calling you to life or death situation? If you're not 100% sure that you're saved, we'd like to invite you to be saved today. If you'd like, you could just slip out of your seat and you could come forward. We've got some men and some ladies that could pray with you right up front. Or we've got a prayer room where they can take you back in there and open up the Bible, explain it in further detail. But the one thing that we cannot do for you here today is we cannot open your heart. Only you can open your heart. The Lord may be knocking, He may be trying, but you have to open up your heart. Will you respond to Him today? I'm going to give you a few minutes here as the pianist plays. No one else is looking. Why not just slip out of your seat? Come on down here and get it settled before it's eternally too late. Don't live a life where you have to worry and be afraid of that second death. I know it's a, it's a terrible thing thinking about standing before a holy God, our Creator, at the judgment and Him knowing everything about me. I, that's just, that, humanly speaking, that just terrifies me. But I'm not afraid of it because I know what His Son Jesus has done for me. And that all of those sins are going to be gone. Praise the Lord. And I don't have to, I don't have to worry about that. I don't have to worry about Him saying, depart from ye accursed into everlasting fire. But rather I can look forward to Him saying, enter thou into the joy of the Lord. Not because of anything that I've done, but because of everything that He has done for me and He's done the same for you if you'll only trust Him. If you'll only trust Him. Let's grab a hymnal. Hymn number 277. We're going to sing a verse of this song. No one comes, then we'll close the service. But we're in no hurry. If you want to respond, if you're not comfortable with coming forward, why don't you just bow right there where you're at? And talk to God and open up your heart. It doesn't matter where your body is. matters what your heart does. Open up and receive Jesus Christ as your Savior before it's eternally too late. As we sing, the invitation's open.